Chapter 22 of The Cliff Dwellers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Cliff Dwellers by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter 22. It endured, in fact, scarcely a fortnight. It lapsed at the close of a dull October day, a day that was within one of the first anniversary of his marriage. Let the means by which he was detected be asked no more than the means through which he transgressed. The delicate mechanism of a bank's accounts responds sensitively to the slightest and most ingenious variation and it may be, too, that someone in this particular bank was watching for the slip and was waiting for the chance to expose and punish it. The smoky dusk of the short afternoon was falling outside, while within, under the illumination made by a single electric light, a mother in the same room where one of Brainard's daughters had pled for the other, was now pleading with him for her son. No taint had ever fallen before on any of her family or connections. She was crushed and dazed at the thought that anything like this had happened, could have happened, had had the slightest need of happening, and she was dumbfounded that all explanation fell upon heedless ears, and that all offers of restitution encountered such stubborn, brutish, and determined opposition. "'We have lands,' she cried, with the tears coursing down her anxious face. "'We can make this good, twice and three times over. What more can you want?' But Brainard did want something more. He wanted the ruin of her son. "'A bank can't deal in real estate,' he said doggedly. He sent a malevolent glance across the table, on whose far edge Ogden's bowed head was resting. Beside Ogden stood Fairchild. There was a look of sympathetic distress upon his kindly face. It is true, he said, in a low and quiet tone, that it is not allowable for us to make a loan upon real property, but it would not be amiss for us to take it in payment of this, this... Theft! cried Brainard loudly. Ogden winced and shuddered. His mother sank into a chair with a low moan. Look here, Fairchild, the old man went on, holding up his forefinger with an offensively masterful effect of caution. It will pay you to go pretty slow just about here. This, he wagged his head contemptuously towards the bowed head of the culprit, was your man. You took his letters. You put him in here. Just stop and think of that. Fairchild bit his lip. And the other man before him was yours. Don't forget that, either. His face showed a cruel and malignant grin. Fairchild flushed and lowered his eyes to the floor in silence. Ogden half raised his head to look at him. What could these words mean? He looked at his mother, too. She was lying back with her face in her hands. The young man's own face was mapped with the lines of a worry that goads one on to desperation and it was painted with the blended hue that comes from shame and anxiety and fear and the exhausting struggles carried on through long and sleepless nights. It was hard to face these other faces. It was hard to face even the light of day, thick and dulling though it might be. 
His head drooped again to the friendly dusk of the tabletop before him. "'By heaven,' Brainard went on, "'not another man comes into this bank except under a guarantee, "'and he'll pay the premium for it if he don't stay more than a week. "'You might think, in a small bank like this, "'that some kind of eye could be kept on things, but it seems not. "'It's pick and steal all the time. First one, then another.' No sooner is young Pratt rooted out than this fellow comes up. One steady string of flea bites. I can't stand it. I won't stand it. Do you think I'm going to have Shane and Cutter and all the rest of em go around and tell how Brainard's always got somebody else's hand in his pants pocket and never finds it out? Not very much. I do find it out, and I'm going to punish it. You needn't ask me to hold off. It's no use. There's a law for this, and that law is going to take its course. His white hair stood up in a stiff shock over his forehead, and the gray gristles sprouting on his lip moved up and down forbiddingly as the lip itself worked over the broken row of his teeth. The red veins in his nose showed more redly yet, and his fists were clenched at the ends of his down-hung arms with the straightened tension of an inexorable will. "'My poor boy! My poor boy!' his mother cried. She came over to him and bowed her head on his. Fairchild looked at Brainard, a look that called for all his self-control and fortitude. "'This is too hard,' he said. "'There was provocation for him, and there are means to make everything good.' "'See here, Fairchild!' cried the enraged old man. "'You have got to keep out of this, if you want to stay friends with me. "'We've pulled together a good while.' but we shall pull apart after five seconds more of this. That young man there has fooled along with us a little too far. He has had his fun, and now he shall pay for it. He shall, by God, I say he shall. His voice rose to a harsh and strident cry, and his great fist fell with a ponderous thud on the table before him. A second later, another hand was heard on the other side of the door. It was faint, but it was audible. It had been preparing for five long and hesitating minutes. To the heart that guided this hand, the five seemed five and twenty. Fairchild moved swiftly towards the door, and laid his hand upon the knob to prevent any intrusion. The knock was repeated. He opened the door to a narrow crack. Then he opened it wider. Abby Brainard stood on the threshold. She stepped in swiftly and softly, she shut the door behind her quickly, and then leaned her back against its shining panels. Her face was pale, her bosom was heaving, but her gray eyes gave out the strong and steady light of courage and resolution. Ogden saw her. He locked his jaws and took a firm hold on the two arms of his chair, and raised himself and stood erect before her. Had not she herself on this very spot once done the same for him? however it might be or might have been with others here at least was one who should not see him humbled there was no salutation of any kind on either side she saw him but seemed to be looking beyond him rather than at him and in his eyes she stood there with the remote inaccessibility of some distant snow-peak her father turned towards her abby you here what do you want what do you mean by coming in like this go out again she looked at him with a cool and quiet inflexibility, but her voice was low and trembling as she said, I shall stay. 
You can't. You mustn't. You don't want to mix up in this business. You don't understand. He laid one hand on her arm, and with the other he reached out towards the doorknob. She withdrew her arm from the hold of his fingers. I understand, she said immovably. He drew back. You do? Well, stay then, if you will, and understand better. Learn what kind of a man he really is. He thrust out his arm towards Ogden with a cruel and contemptuous smile. He came here with letters, he began. We gave him a chance. Nobody really knew what he was. Ogden stood there straight before him. He ground his teeth together to keep his face composed. Behind him his nails dug into the palms of his hands as he held himself back from springing forward and fastening them around the throat of Abby Brainard's father. There was a ringing in his ears, and through it there sounded faintly the fine tones of Fairchild speaking to Mary Brainard. Nobody really knows who he is, or who his people are, or where he is from. A town full to overflowing with single young men from everywhere. They are taken on faith. Most of them are all right, no doubt, but others. He was now one of the others. His people, whom no one had known, were to be known now, after years of probity, as the relatives of a... Nobody really knew who he was, Brainard repeated, but he was taken right in and given a good place. Hasn't he ever wondered why? Is it so easy to go into a new town and get a good job in a bank the very first thing? Wasn't there any other men to jump at the chance of a position half as good? Ain't the city full of em? Wasn't there any of em in the bank itself who was waitin' for the place themselves and had a right to it too? Why was there a vacant place to fill anyhow? Because a week before another man had done just what this man has done. He was your man, Fairchild, too. And why did this one here come steppin' in ahead of all the old ones? You fixed it, Fairchild. You liked his looks and his talk, you said. Another bad guess for you. Fairchild studied the carpet with abashed eyes as were he himself the culprit. Yes, Brainard continued. He was put in a good place, and he was pushed right along. Hasn't he ever guessed why? Does a new man come into an office like this and get as far along inside of a year as he has without there being any reason for it? I'll tell him the reason for it. I did it because my girl here... Father, cried Abby with face aflame. No, no. You say you understand, he said, turning towards her. Now let him understand, too. I advanced him to this position, he went on shamelessly, because my girl here asked me to. No, father, no, the poor girl cried. She threw her shamefaced head on Mrs. Ogden's bosom. She had never seen her before, but under such circumstances the only place for a woman's face was on another woman's breast. "'Yes, you did, too. Ask me,' he went on, with increased hardihood. "'Or just the same as asked. I knew what you meant well enough, and I said to myself I'd do it. One girl went wrong,' he continued, with a choking in his throat. "'And I wanted to do what I could to. I wanted Abby to do different. I wasn't going to have her carried off by another infernal scoundrel.' Ogden flushed and paled and sank down into his chair. His head dropped into his hands. There was no possibility of his holding it up before anything like this. 
And so I helped him on. I said, if I do the right thing by him, he will do the right thing by her. He will act like a man. I did do the right thing by him. And what then? He had been hanging around all the spring, taking walks and sitting out in front and borrowing books. But the moment I put him on his legs, what did he do? He was addressing the young man's mother now, whose tear-stained face showed over Abby's black hat and whose poor old hand was laid tenderly on abby's shoulder it was plain to every one now that the question was not one of money ogden saw clearly enough at last why he had suffered wreck when so many others had ridden the waves pratt had filched and had escaped mcdowell had plundered right and left and had never been brought down Brainard himself had piled up a scandalous fortune, and yet had contrived to evade the law, but none of them had come athwart the mortified rage of a father, a father who had humbled his inborn savageness and pride for a daughter's sake, and had humbled himself in vain. Ogden glanced across towards Abby. She rested on his mother's shoulder as once, almost, and in this very room she had rested on his he knew why she had come he recognized her devotion and her bravery she had overlooked his pitiful palterings she had forgiven the final slight to which they had led she had imperiled her modesty and mortified her self-love by coming here that she might save him from her father's vengeance her father looked at her now and took a softer tone "'She's the best girl there ever was in the world,' he declared, with a choking voice and a moistened glimmer in his eyes. "'And the smartest. She knows how to do everything. She's the only real comfort I've ever had. She would be a credit to any man. I don't care who. And what does he pass her over for?' "'For another,' he went on, with a recrudescence of his insane and primitive jealousy." who can't care for her house who couldn't be a mother to his child who has ruined him by her extravagance stop cried ogden he rose and approached brainard there was a threatening glitter in his eyes and convulsive twitches played among his fingers yes stop for heaven's sake said fairchild laying an expostulatory hand on the old man's arm stop he murmured again his wife is dying Abby rushed between Ogden and her father. "'George! George!' she cried. "'Don't! Be patient!' "'What if his wife is dying?' called out the infuriated old wretch. "'Is that any reason for lying down when he has slighted my daughter and robbed me?' "'For shame, father! For shame!' She hid her face in her hands, and her tears gushed through them. Ogden paused, stung and quivering. His hands dropped. His fingers relaxed. His wife was dying. Nobody had told him that before, and he had never dared to tell it to himself, but it was true, and he knew it. Abby rose again and confronted her father. The tears were still in her eyes, and a wide blush suffused her cheeks. Father, you shall not punish him. He may have done wrong, but there was reason for it, and any wrong he has done can be set right. Ogden's eyes were bedimmed, but through the moisture he seemed to see again the sight that closed the evening of his one-day wedding journey towards the north. Again he stood on the bridge, and the sun set over one lake while the moon rose over the other. 
only now, with Abby Brainard's blushes before his body's eye, and his wife's pale face before his mind's eye, a confusion came alike over his thought and his vision. It was now the sun rising on him at the moment that the pallid moon was going down. He looked at her, and she looked at him, and in the eyes of both there was read the confession of a great mistake. Then her eyes drooped for shame, and his for disloyalty, and neither one was able to look into the other's face again. "'Do you defend him?' her father cried. "'Can you forgive her? I can't do either. No quarter. Don't ask it, Abby. He has chosen his course. He is responsible for his acts, and he shall answer for them, as any other man must who crosses me.' He flung open the door and passed out. Fairchild stood anxiously over the chair in which Abby lay back panting for breath. Ogden pressed her hand and turned towards his mother. "'Come, let us go,' he said, and the two passed out into the great vestibule of the Clifton. He signaled the elevator. "'Wait for me here, mother. Five minutes,' he spoke in a voice which she hardly recognized as his. Twelfth, she heard him say to the boy inside. Twelfth, she gasped. Twelfth, it's Eugene. She tried to stop him, her fingers merely caught in the grillwork that shut off the empty shaft. Why do we go mad? Why do we kill ourselves? Why is there more insanity and more self-murder today than ever before? It is because under existing conditions the relief that comes from action is so largely shut off how has humanity contrived to endure so well the countless ills of countless ages? Because society has been in general loose-knit, so that each unit in it has had room for some individual play. What so increases and intensifies the agonies of today, the fact that society has a closer and denser texture than ever before, its fine-spun meshes bind us and strangle us, Indignation ferments without vent. Injury awaits with a wearing impatience the slow and formal infliction of a corporal punishment. Self-consciousness paralyzes the quick and free action that is the surest and sometimes the only relief. McDowell was in his office alone. A single light was burning in the room, and nothing remained but the drawing down of a desktop and the quenching of the light before locking the door from the outside and calling the day's work over. He looked up as Ogden entered. "'Oh, it's you. I haven't seen you for some time past.' He used the dubious intonation that marks a half-smothered enmity. "'Yes, it's I, and you won't see me for some time to come. You see me this once.' He stood with his hand on the back of a chair. He made no motion to seat himself, but he was unmistakably planted there to remain. McDowell therefore resumed his own accustomed chair beside his desk. "'Well, what is it?' he asked. He scrutinized Ogden with an undisguised curiosity. The young man's voice sounded strange in his ears. His face had an expression which made it almost the face of an acquaintance now first met. "'I have come to square with you,' began Ogden slowly. He passed an unconscious hand along the varnished back of the chair. It was a chair in yellow oak, whose frame was light but strong, and whose seat was of cane. "'We are square,' said McDowell curtly. "'You have your deeds for that ground, all put into the settlement at a fair value. 
I have paid your interest as it came due, and shall go on doing so. The principal the same. I'm all right. What is it you want? Try the courts if you think you can reach me. I shall reach you. I wonder how? Ogden lifted his hand from the chair to his forehead, across which he passed it once or twice. McDowell gave him an amused smile. "'You have robbed me,' Ogden said. "'You have disgraced me. "'You have brought me to the edge of ruin. "'You took advantage of my trust, my inexperience, "'my strangeness to the city. "'You have stripped us all, and you have used my sister for a shield. "'You knew we would stand everything for her, and we have stood everything. "'You have acted like a sneak and a coward.' "'McDowell's eyes dropped to his desk, but no flush mounted to his face.' that would have been a physical and a moral impossibility he looked up again after a moment you will reach me i wonder how ogden for the first time in his life passed completely out of himself there fell away from him all the fetters that shackle the super-civilized man who is habitually conscious of his civilization like this he seized the chair raised it over mcdowell's head and went out, leaving the man crushed and bleeding on the floor. End of chapter 22